Let's open the Bible to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Where do all Presbyterians become Baptists? At death in a cemetery. Because they all get immersed. They don't leave bodies laying out in a cemetery with a little bit of dirt sprinkled on their forehead. They all go down immersed, submerged, underground, like Baptists baptize. And so let's consider baptism for just a moment. Baptism is a wonderful ordinance. It shouldn't be done lightly. It shouldn't be done hastily. We have slowed it down in this church. And we try at every time we have a baptism to remind all of us about the features of the symbolism of baptism so that we can fully appreciate how the gospel is presented by Baptist baptism. Presbyterian baptism doesn't present any gospel or Lutheran or Methodist or Church of England, Episcopalian, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, or the rest. And so we are thankful and give thanks to God for the doctrine of baptism. In Romans chapter 6, Paul is continuing to write, remember that chapter distinctions are only a few hundred years old, that Paul has just preached in Romans chapter 5 in writing. He has laid out how the second Adam has saved us by representing us before God. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, that's Adam in the Garden of Eden, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. We believe in the doctrine of representation that the first Adam condemned the race that was in him by his single act of disobedience. And the Lord Jesus Christ, by his obedient life and obedient death, made all those that are in him righteous. Then it goes on to say in the last two verses of Romans 5, that where sin abounded, grace hath much more abounded. And that grace is reigning through righteousness unto eternal life. Well, with all that great emphasis on salvation of chapter 5, this is a possible logical conclusion of verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? In light of what you've just written in chapter 5, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? If where sin abounds, grace does much more abound, which is what verse 20 says, then we might as well just go ahead and keep sinning since there's so much grace to cover our sins. God forbid is the short answer. God forbid that it's totally wrong to think that way. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Well, in what way are we dead to sin? By Baptist baptism. We're dead to sin. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Baptist baptism involves a death because there's a burial and then it has a resurrection in and out of water. Total submersion, immersion, dipping. It was John the Dipper, John the Baptist, same thing, and then rising again. And so there's great symbolism there and we want to think about it for a moment in the light of resurrection. Baptism shows three burials and three resurrections. It's an incredibly wonderful ordinance in the wisdom of God. And we have one of them right here. Verse 4, Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. Baptism has a symbolism of burial to his death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Jesus was raised from an earthly grave. We're raised from a watery grave to walk in a new life. To walk in a newness of life. That means it's a resurrected life. 
And really, the practical bottom line of preaching about the resurrection is for us all to have a resurrected life. Is your life different from everyone else's life? Is your life different from your past life? Because baptism buries our natural, ordinary, sinful way of life, and we come up out of the water to live a new life, a resurrected life. Verse 5, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, because we buried that old man in the waters of baptism, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And it goes on, it continues a practical line of reasoning that baptism should change our lives. Because we showed that we were burying our sinful way of living and rising to walk in a new resurrected life. Immersion in water and rising again is a figure of our Lord's resurrection. I'll not turn you to 1 Peter 3.21, the most definitive verse in the Bible about baptism. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is a picture of the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the first picture that baptism gives us. Baptist baptism is a burial, and it's a resurrection, but there are three burials and resurrections we all want to see. The first is, that's what Jesus did to save me. He was buried and he rose again. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Then, it is a figure of our future resurrection. What I'm speaking about today, that Jesus is going to come back and pull us out of the ground. That though you bury me in a cemetery... Jesus is going to raise me up again out of that cemetery in my physical body. And we use 1 Corinthians 15, 29 for that, that you read last evening. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise, not at all. If there is no resurrection of the dead, like you Corinthians have allowed some to preach in your pulpit, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? Paul's argument is very simple. It's one verse long and it's practical. If you people are allowing preachers in your pulpits that are denying the resurrection of the dead, why do you still practice Baptist baptism? Because Baptist baptism shows burial and resurrection. But if there is no resurrection, why do you keep baptizing like Baptists and showing a picture of death and resurrection from the dead? It's it's a beautiful argument. Then his next three verses are about fighting with beasts at Ephesus. Like a gladiator, he was just saying, why would I put my life at risk every day as an apostle unless there's something later on for me by the resurrection? So there's two practical arguments in the midst of that doctrinal dissertation and proof of of the resurrection of the body. So second picture that it shows is our resurrection in our bodies when Jesus Christ returns to earth. And I used 1 Corinthians 15, 29 to show that because that's what there. No one can answer 1 Corinthians 15, 29 except a Baptist. No one knows what the verse means. Mormons think that you go to their temples and get baptized for dead relatives that never met Joe Smith. I mean, it's called baptism for the dead. That's what they believe. Because nobody understands the verse. How can a Presbyterian understand the verse? Because their baptism has no picture of burial or resurrection. Baptists know 1 Corinthians 15, 29 because it was written by a Baptist. You say Paul was a Baptist? What do you think he was, a Methodist? (laughs) Paul was a Baptist. We just read in Romans 6 that Paul wrote buried with him in baptism. Methodists don't bury anyone with sprinkling a little water on their foreheads. 
He was converted by a Baptist because Jesus was a Baptist. How do we know Jesus was a Baptist? Because he was baptized by a Baptist preacher, John the Baptist. You say you're arrogant about being a Baptist. I don't know if it's arrogance. I hope it's just thankfulness and confidence that John was called a Baptist and so we go around dipping and we need a bunch of water to get it done. We can't do it with a canteen just like the Ethiopian eunuch got baptized in an oasis in the desert because they went down out of the chariot and then they went down into the water and they came up out of the water, both Philip and the eunuch, because it was showing that wonderful picture that we have. Third picture, burial in water and rising again. This passage right here, Romans 6, is a picture of our resurrected life. We bury our old way of living. We bury the old man to rise to walk with the new man. Three pictures of burial and resurrection in Baptist baptism. You know I, I'm not going to bring up this subject without going to Colossians chapter 3. So please turn there with me because I love Colossians chapter 3, the first four verses on this subject. Most Christians, corrupt baptism. 95% of the world's 2.2 billion Christians do not know how to baptize. The simplest doctrine in the Bible, that water baptism, they don't understand. Roman Catholics, Orthodox, Protestants, and the rest of them sprinkle. They sprinkle babies. They pour water on babies. They don't know baptism. They say that it regenerates them. It makes them a child of God. It makes them a member of the church as an infant. That's not taught in the Bible anywhere. And it's only by the grace of God that we see it or we'd be loyal, faithful Catholics right now. I'd be thumbing my rosary so fast, trying to say prayers faster than you. You'd be trying to buy a candle for your dead relatives. We'd be playing bingo on Saturday nights before Mass. If it weren't for the grace of God... We know nothing by intellectual exercise, intelligence, design, effort. We, no, we know none of it by our efforts. We know it by the grace of God showing us, and I thank God that he has converted us to know these things. Thank you, Lord. We are little children. We would not be able to figure out anything ourselves. We have just prayed, separate from this sermon, that you would give us wisdom as little children like Solomon prayed. We do not exercise ourselves in matters too high for us. Our eyes are not lofty. Our heart is not haughty. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for every bit of truth that we have, but we will never apologize for the truth that You've shown us. We will preach it plainly, and we will deny any error compromising it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ. Paul was alive on earth, writing a church in Colossae that was alive on earth. He said, if ye then be risen with Christ. In what way were they risen with Christ? Risen in baptism. Because back up about 10 verses to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12. Colossians 2, 12. I never want you to forget this. Love these verses. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also, that is in baptism as well, ye are risen with him. So that's where you're risen. Through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Look at... Beautiful verse that there is here about baptism and tying it to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the operation of God that did it and our faith in that operation of God. That's what baptism is all about. Do you have faith in the operation of God that raised Jesus from the dead? Then it's time for you to be baptized. Thank you for smiling at me, Jonah Unger. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ... Risen with him in baptism, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. It should change our lives. 
If we have gone into the waters of baptism to bury our old way of living, to rise, to walk in a new life like Jesus Christ's life, then our affection and attention should be on things in heaven. And we shouldn't be all tied up, wrapped up, and slaves to this world. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead. How are we dead? We're dead by baptism. We've declared death to this world. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Our real life is a spiritual life and a spiritual existence that we're looking forward to its completion in heaven to be with the Lord. When Christ, verse 4, who is our life, he's our life because he is the life. He's the resurrection and the life. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. That's what we're, that's what we're saying when we're baptized, and let's just live like it. Thank you, Lord, for the doctrine of baptism. We reject cremation. I was thankful on Friday to be someplace where extra money was spent, extra time was taken, trouble was endured in order to have a burial. As the nation exalts humanistic atheism and paganism, more than half are now cremated. In the year 2016, we have passed through 50%, and this so-called Christian nation, over 50% of those that die are now cremated, burned like Hindus, burned like pagans, because they have no concept of where the body came from, what the body is for, who's died for the body, what's going to happen to the body in the future. They don't know any of that because they don't know anything. Where do you think it came from? You've got to go to India to see the ignorance of a nation that doesn't know anything and how they treat their dead and burn them. We don't burn. In the Bible, Christians didn't burn. They buried. They took great expense and time and effort to bury. If Abraham didn't own any property in Canaan, he went and bought some property so that he could have a funeral, uh, so that he could have a family cemetery in order to bury Sarah, and there were other relatives buried there after Sarah. You know there's a whole sermon on this, and there's a whole document on the website. I only have time to mention it. But we're talking about resurrection, so we are different. I don't know if you've picked up on this or not yet. Do you understand? Do you understand why we baptize the way we baptize? Because we believe in the resurrection. It's not just because the Southern Baptist Convention tells us we need to immerse them. We baptize the way we baptize because of its symbolism, declaring a burial and a resurrection in three different ways in the Bible. That's why we do it. Why do we bury our dead, even if it costs us several thousand more than it would cost us to have somebody light up their gas oven? Because we want to follow the Bible and follow its practice, its practice, its example, and its doctrine that Jesus died for our bodies, so we treat the bodies with care. I saw a body on Friday very well dressed, hair combed, good-looking man, Great big, strong hands in a supine position on his back, waiting for something. That's how we ought to bury everyone. Amen. And if they don't prepare themselves before they get there so that they have assurance when they go in, that's between them and the Lord. And what happens afterwards is between the Lord and them. And that's where we put it. But you know what? There we are in a supine position laying on some nice a little tiny mattress of some sort and maybe a little silk pillow and the body's just lying there and, the, and what does Jesus say that it's doing? It's sleeping. What's an R word for it? 
It's rest. It's just lying there at rest. Guts. And we love doing that. I want, I wanted to, and I did, just walk up there and look. That's the house that Robert Waller lived in. That's the house. Look at how we're taking care of it. It's costing extra thousands. I looked around, yes. Saw the vault, you know, the stone, the identification. All of that takes extra money. When I hear somebody bring up the issue of money about burial, I know that I have just met somebody that has a very, very small mind and doesn't have a heart. How could you ever let a couple thousand dollars, I don't care if it's four, how could you allow, I don't care if it's five, thousand dollars weigh on a moral decision of Bible doctrine and confidence in the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross that was to purchase bodies as well. Jesus died for our body as well as our soul and our spirit. We are all his, and so we take care of it that way. In 1960, what percentage of Americans were cremated? Three. What happened in 1960 to change things? The Pope said it was okay to cremate. That's what happened in 1960. It only takes one year of the money that you have wasted on pizza and eating out to pay for a burial for anyone in America. And so when I meet somebody that wants to talk about the expense, they have brought cremation into their family by eating too much pizza during the previous 12 months. Because it's not that expensive. You know, Titus lived in a place where it's a little bit more expensive. How cheap do you think a burial plot is in Singapore? There isn't any land, but all they have to do is drive a few miles to be in southern Malaysia and it gets real cheap real fast. There's always a way if your heart's right in the matter of burial. Oh, I don't I want to get off this subject. Cremation comes from the most irreligious nations on earth, Japan and India. Bur- Japan is known by the whole world as being the most irreligious nation on earth. And they cremate the most. Burial in the Bible was done regardless of cost or effort, contrary to the selfishness today. Look at 1 Corinthians 6 if you want to see that Jesus died for the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This isn't just because I don't like cremation and that burning my mother would scare me or something. I don't like the thought. But we do it because of the Bible. And everybody believed the same thing. What's happened? What's happened? 50%? Canada's about 85. Is it hard for you to figure out why Canada would be 85 and America 50? There aren't any believers in Canada. Don't you know that difference? When I say there aren't any believers in Canada, I mean evangelical, on fire, Bible-loving, King James Bible-preaching Christians are very rare north of the border. There's a difference south of the border. And if you go to Wikipedia or you go online and ask for a a list of the countries and their percentage of cremating, it'll be so plain for you to see. It's all a degree of where biblical Christianity has been preached. And there's a difference between America and Canada, just like there's a difference between Washington and Tennessee. You want to talk about a liberal state that doesn't have very many evangelical Christians, that just thinks way out there in la-la land? It's the state of Washington. Go look at Washington, Nevada, and the states out west. 
and how the rate that they cremate at compared to Tennessee and Kentucky where there's still a bunch of, yep, simple, backward, Bible-believing Christians. Yep, they still want to go to a funeral and they still want to put a body in the ground. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13, meats for the belly and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord. Your body is for the Lord. Your body, not your soul, not your spirit, your body. Now the body is not for fornication. We're not to use our bodies in sexual sins. We're to use our bodies for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Because Jesus is for your body. And God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. What will he raise up? The Spirit's already in heaven, so he can't raise it up. He raises our bodies up. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Your bodies are the members of Christ. This is a, look at this passage. How can you cremate after this? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh. Notice how careful the apostle is describing the relationship of a body. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Therefore glorify God in your body. Therefore glorify God in your body. How do we glorify God in our body? We bury it. Because we believe in the resurrection. We don't need to desecrate it. We don't need to destroy it. We don't need to profane it. Like the profane religions of the world profane their dead. We put it to rest in a box, comfortable, dressed, ready, waiting for the Lord to come. Now there's much more on the website about that. We separate from all that false religion, darkness. What, what kind of nations cremated? The ones that have no light. Zero light. You know, America used to have light. They used to call it a Christian nation. They still try to call it a Christian nation, but it's changed. We can face death confidently. Did you like 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when you read it last evening, the last part? Oh, I like that kind of a response. 1 Corinthians 15 is a wonderful chapter. Chapter 14 is about the gifts of the church and speaking in tongues. Chapter 16 is about giving for the saints. 16 is totally different. 14 is totally different. 15, 58 verses. They're all about the resurrection of the physical body. Every single verse. Just get in there and delight yourself. Remember that forever. Where can I go to learn about the resurrection of the body? 1 Corinthians 15. And, and there's so many favorite verses in there about the resurrection. Orville, is it still up there near the top of your list? Okay, son. I haven't forgotten yet. We can face death confidently. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. So when this corruptible, your body right now that is sitting there is corrupting while I speak. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal, your body is dying, it's mortal, it's not going to live forever, shall have put on immortality, that's when Christ comes, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. That saying is in Isaiah 25 and verse 8. Then shall be brought to pass the saying. The saying has been true for 2,600 years since Isaiah penned it. But it will be brought to pass. In reality, it will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. 
Sometimes when guys are doing a little too much talking about athletic ability, they'll say, he can eat him for lunch or he can eat him for breakfast. Death is swallowed up in victory. Victory is just going to devour death. It's going to eat it for breakfast. There's going to be no death left. Life is going to swallow it up. Death is swallowed up in victory. Verse 55 is from the book of Hosea, chapter 13, verse 14. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Death has a sting. But look at how a Christian should think about it and talk about it and read about it in the Bible. This is Paul. This is Hosea. This is God, the Holy Spirit, inspiring these statements for us. Is it foolish to talk this way? No. Why don't we talk this way more often? Because we get a little too carnally minded, a little too entrapped in this world, and we're not thinking as much spiritually, and we're not sure where we would go if we did die right then. But when we're walking with the Lord, we're filled with His Word, and and we have set our attention and our affection on things above, this is the way we should think. I want to think this way all the time. I want to help you think this way all the time. Oh, death. Where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ kept the law perfectly and then died for us to defeat death. And so the sting is taken away. The claims of the law are taken away. Wonderful verses. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can blast death in the face with his word. We don't care if you take this body. Listen, if you have your mind working right, your spiritual mind, you know that it is your body that pulls you down. It is your body that leads you to to temptation and to sin. You should want to get rid of it. And death, all that's left, is not penal punishment by God. He's not going to send us to hell. He's abolished the penal effect of death. we got to get rid of this thing. Get this carcass off me, Lord. Have you ever been so close to the Lord, rejoicing in Him, knowing that you're walking with Him? You've got His right hand in yours. That you think something like, this is so wonderful, Lord, just give me the big one right now. I want to help you think that way all the time. I want you to help me think that way all the time. That's what we're in the church for together. Do you know why it says in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. What are these words? For the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. We come inside these four walls, and there's nothing pretty in here, and especially when you look toward the pulpit. There is nothing pretty in here, but we come in here to remind ourselves that there is a life after this life, and there is life after death, and we want to get rid of these bodies because we're going to get a body made in heaven without hands. It's going to be by the power of God. So let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Did Paul believe 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is thy sting? Did he say it was better to depart and to be with Christ than to be here? Amen. What was the little three-letter adjective? Far better. Far better to depart and to be with Christ than to be here. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. For we know 
My father unloaded these verses under a tent with 60 mile an hour gale winds trying to blow us all away on Friday on a hilltop in Virginia. Probably not 60. For we know, my dad wanted to emphasize the word know and the word confident that we're going to encounter here. So keep them in mind. For we know that if our earthly house, every time I went to a cemetery as a child, my mother, a burial, a funeral, every time I went to a funeral as a child, my mother would take me up there and show me the body and say, Jonathan, Paul, this is just the house that that person lived in. Just calling it the house. I was being taught the Bible. And I'm trying to, I want to teach you the Bible right now. That is just their house that the Spirit lived in, and death is the Spirit leaving the house to go to be with God. And the house goes in the ground, then the house corrupts. God puts it back together and changes the house and gives it quite a, a, an uplift. Uh, uh, new paint job. You know, it, it goes from weakness to power, from dishonor to glory. It's a spiritual body. It is, it is incredible. It'll be like Jesus Christ's glorious body. What did he look like in Revelation chapter 1? Did he have to use the door when he visited with the apostles? For we know that if our earthly house, that's our body, of this tabernacle, living on earth, were dissolved, if we die and our bodies are put in the ground and they dissolve, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. A divine body will be given to us, made by God himself. For in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. Do you fit that verse? Paul knew that he, and he believed that most of the Corinthians, earnestly desired to have that new house from heaven. Do you want the new house from heaven? We've got to prepare ourselves. We've got to come in here and talk about this so that we go home convinced, yes, I don't want to be content with this body. If so, be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. We don't want a spirit floating around without a body. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed. It's not just to get rid of our body, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. There it is again. Life swallowing up mortality. Life eating death for breakfast. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God. God has done everything and brought us into existence for this event so that he can glorify himself through us being glorified in heaven. Do you understand that? Why do you live? For God to give a demonstration to the universe of what he can do to creatures that sin against him and that he curses with death and then he destroys the curse of death with the death of his son Jesus Christ and gives life back to you a far greater level and height even above the angels. They're going to be our servants. Now he that hath wrought us, he that has created us and worked us over and designed us for this self-same thing, for dying and getting a new body, is God. This is all God's work. You know you weren't asked if you, want, if you wanted existence on earth, if you wanted an earthly house and an, and an earthly tabernacle, you weren't asked anything. You just woke up one day and said, I think I'm alive. Five, it's for some. Graduation from high school for others. You know, whatever. Just That's just to help you relax. Lord, forgive me. 
Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. That earnest of the Spirit is the Spirit of God in us as a down payment performance bond guarantee from God that He is going to do these things for us. And at times, we know we are His. We know that He loves us. We know that we love Him and our love is accepted by Him and that He is going to do these things for us. And it's the only times that that leaves you is when you have let inputs or been lazy and have lost the influence of the Spirit of God in your life by grieving or quenching Him. This is his ministry to give you a down payment and a guarantee and to seal you as being God's and that all these things will be done for you. He's given to us the earnest of the Spirit. That's Ephesians chapter 1. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's throughout the, gospel, throughout the epistles of Paul, that benefit that we have. Therefore, verse 6, Therefore, because we have the earnest of the Spirit, we have the performance bond of God's presence with us, we are always confident how often? Paul was always confident. Let's be always confident. Let's push each other, press each other, provoke each other to love and to good works, that we will always be confident knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, while we're here on earth in our physical bodies, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And that's what we want to help each other do is to be confident and willing, willing, let's just go ahead and get this over with, willing to die yep. so that I can get rid of this body, be with the Lord, get my new body. And the Holy Spirit inside of us comforts us that that's the right way we ought to be thinking, encourages us. The Lord is yours. He's on your side. Jesus is not going to lose a single one. He's at the right hand of God. He's going to reach forth his right hand and take yours. And so he builds up our confidence to do that because we walk by faith, not by sight. To the degree we start walking this way by sight, we lose it. We come into here to get our faith restored, our faith revived by the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The more we hear about the resurrection and we hear about how Paul looked at it, we can go out and think the same way. If we forsake the assembly of the saints together, if we listen to false teachers, we can have our faith overthrown. If we get carnally minded, we're just looking horizontally we forget what's waiting in store for us, and life becomes a real problem. I don't need to show you that in the Bible, death is called sleep, do I? Because you know that it says that over and over. Death is called sleep. When Jesus Christ comes back, in order to comfort those that have dead relatives, who's he going to raise first? The dead in Christ. You're going to have to wait. I don't think you'll have to wait long. If you're still alive when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, he's going to go right past you. He's going to go right past you to the cemeteries and pull up all the dead. He tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And that was to comfort them. Because Paul wrote to that church and said, I would not have you to be ignorant concerning them which are asleep like others which have no hope. We have hope for our dead. No one else has hope for their dead, so go ahead and burn them. We have hope for our dead. It's, it's a tremendous... Do you understand the power of the gospel? When, when someone dear to us dies, you know, are you telling us that we ought to spend an extra $1,000 on a nice casket? Well, I don't think they can feel it. I'm not saying anything like that, but it's just nice to know that we're going to take care of them and put them in the ground like Abraham did Sarah, like they did David, like they did Jesus. Did they go anoint the body of Jesus? Did they wrap it all up? 
They put it in a special tomb. Was it a rich man's tomb? And so we do that. Because we have hope for our dead. What a religion. What a wonderful religion. We have hope for our dead. Those believing dead especially. Those believing dead only. Oh, Lord God, have mercy upon our families. I would not have you to be ignorant concerning them which are asleep, even as others which have no hope. For this we know by the word of the Lord, that the Lord's going to descend, descend from heaven and, and take them and raise them and raise them first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and it'll be a family reunion of all the elect in your family. When Abraham died, it says he was gathered to his people. When Isaac died, it says he was gathered to his people. When Jacob died, it says he was gathered to his people. His spirit was gathered to his people in heaven. And their bodies will be put back together with those spirits. Death is a gathering of spirits into heaven. Life is vain insanity without the resurrection. Charlie stood with me yesterday after most had left, and we watched the casket being lowered into the vault, the vault lid put on, the whole thing lowered into the grave. All is vanity. All Charlie could think of was Ecclesiastes. All is vanity. All is vanity. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And vexation of spirit, because that's all we have on this plane. When we look back at a person's life and we look at the pictures and we look at the good times they had, let's separate spiritual things and natural things, all those natural things, the jobs that we did and, and anything else, motorcycles or new cars or new houses, all those things, it's all vanity because death just takes it all away. Right. And like Paul wrote, we came into this world with nothing and we go out of this world with nothing. We came in naked, we go out naked. There's nothing with us, just our spirits taken away. And so all is vanity. And that's why a funeral is such a good place to go and the living will lay it to his heart that all is vanity. It doesn't mean we can't have those things, but those things need to be kept in their proper place and perspective so that we think upon things that are far more weighty and eternal. The things which are not seen you want to talk about a great piece of philosophical wisdom? From Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, the things which are not seen are eternal. If you can see them with the two mucous membrane sacs and muscles in the eye sockets of your skull, then they're temporal. If you can see them with these, that is a piece of philosophical wisdom inspired by God through Paul's pen, that there are things outside of our sight that are more important. And so all the things that we see are vanity. And, and not only are they vanity, they're vexation of spirit. They give us a bunch of trouble getting them, keeping them. But we have the resurrection, which puts it all in perspective. In the book of Proverbs, in the book of Proverbs, Solomon liked to distinguish between the end and the future of the righteous and the wicked. Listen to this verse. The hope of the righteous shall be gladness. A righteous man has hope and it turns into gladness because it all turns out well. It all turns out perfectly well. It all turns out perfectly. 
The hope of the righteous shall be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked shall perish. What they expect, what they're looking to achieve, what they think the future holds for them, perishes. Every thought, dream, and ambition they ever had disappears at the moment of death. And their little fantasy that there's nothing after death, that disappears too. Because then they meet God. But the hope, the hope of the righteous turns into gladness. We haven't even seen the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Do you know what the Bible says about what's coming? I hath not seen. That's why I'm making fun of your physical eyeballs. They've never seen anything really nice. I hath not seen. Don't argue with me. I know there's beautiful things out there. I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. How do we know those things? The word of God reveals it to us by his spirit. And that's part of the resurrection. Martha, will Lazarus ever rise from the dead? Oh, yes, Lord. In the last day, he'll rise from the dead. I am the resurrection and the life, Martha. He that liveth and believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And, you know, Jesus had a dual meaning on his words with Martha there, that he was going to raise Lazarus once and then raise him again with us, his body, in the day that's coming. The resurrection of Jesus Christ adds to his saving power. Let's close with this. I've done this with you so many times. But listen, brethren, there are children growing up in our church and there's others that haven't heard and you need to hear it again because I love hearing it every time. Romans chapter 5, would you please allow me? This is my concluding point and will bring us into the Lord's Supper. The Lord Jesus Christ can resurrect. Romans chapter 5 is where you need to turn. Jesus Christ can resurrect you or your life in so many different ways if you will believe and call upon him and obey him. He has resurrection power. He can speak the word and calm storms at sea. He can give peace, perfect peace in our hearts when our minds are stayed on him. And he's going to raise us all from the dead. Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ with repentance and sincerity? He that liveth and believeth in me, though he were dead, subjunctive mood, though he would die, he'll live forever. John 11, verses 25 and 26. Your life should show the resurrection power of Jesus Christ to make all things new by your new man. If there's one thought we ought to carry out of today, other than and beyond the glory of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, who by his death opened the cemeteries in Jerusalem and its surrounding area, and when he rose from the dead, many dead saints rose by the residual power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and went into the city and showed themselves alive to many. That is in the Bible, and I believe it. But while we get excited about those kind of things and how much greater the power of Jesus Christ is than Elisha, whose power was double that of Elijah by the way that we look at it, let's live resurrected lives. I am not going to live that dead way of this world. My life is hid with Christ in God. I'm dead, as Colossians 3 says. I'm going to have resurrected speech. I'm not going to let my speech be the speech of dead men of this world. It's going to be the living, a living newness of life, like they speak in heaven. I'm going to speak like the angels. I'm going to speak like the Lord. I'm going to speak like the saints, the spirits of just men made perfect. I'm going to cha- Lord, help us change. That's what he died for. And he tells us to put off our old man and to put on our new man. And it's a struggle every day. It's the war with our flesh. 
But the Lord, we've, we've got one on our side. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know I have tried to stress recently, and the young people got it on Wednesday night, that when we die, the Lord Jesus Christ will take us by his right hand. But that right hand is there for you right now. It's Isaiah 41 and verse 13. Take my right hand with your right hand because I will help you. There is there. And let's live with confidence. Okay, my final point. The resurrection of Jesus Christ adds to his death. Without his resurrection, his death is in vain. Without his resurrection, we're still in our sins. But there's more. What is Jesus doing now with his life? That is what the point I want to make. As we celebrate his death, he destroyed death by death. He destroyed death by dying for us. He took, the, he took all of our death and the penal force of death upon himself and went through the curtain of death himself for us. So that now death is just to get rid of this body so it can be planted for a glorified body. But here's what the Bible says. Verse 10 of Romans 5, For if, Romans 5.10, For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, Jesus dying for us reconciled us to God. He paid for our sins, and He gave us His perfect righteousness, so that in the sight of God we are perfectly righteous like His Son, Jesus Christ. And that occurred by His death. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, God's choice of words, much more being reconciled and having that out of the way by his death, we shall be saved by his life. What is Jesus doing right now with his resurrected life? He is seated at the right hand of God making intercession for us every day. Our lawyer, our counselor, our advocate, our intercessor, our mediator is at the right hand of God. Constantly there is our high priest in a way that the Jews perfectly understood and that those with religions with priests understood that Jesus is a perpetual priest forever after the order of Melchizedek to constantly be there at the right hand of God. Not that God has a forgetful memory and will forget the sacrifice of his son, but fulfilling the role of a priest, reminding God, pressing God, seeking forgiveness for our sins on a daily basis. When we confess our sins, it's all wrapped up in his intercessory work. And so the apostle could say this present work of his is great enough in its value and scope that we can say much more while he reconciled us with his death He's going to save us by his life by making sure not a single one is lost. Right. I think that the words much more, when compared to the death of Christ, are rather weighty, since the death of Christ is rather important in the gospel. Turn over two pages to Romans chapter 8, and you'll find it again in your Bible. It's just two different words instead of much more, but they mean the same as much more. Verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Romans 8.33 Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. That means we're reconciled. Sins have been paid for, and we have Christ's perfect righteousness. Who can charge us with anything in heaven? No one can, because God's justified us. Who is he that condemneth? 
verse 34, there's no one that can condemn us because there is therefore now no condemnation of them which are in Christ Jesus. It is Christ that died. Who is he that condemneth? No one can condemn us because it is Christ that died, yea, rather. Instead of much more, it says, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. He's there as the surety for his people that the, the efforts, the accomplishments, the value, the reconciliation of his death will never be lost because he's perpetually there, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What was the problem with the Levitical priesthood? They all died. They just kept dying. Hebrews chapter 7 is all about the improved, better, much better priesthood of Jesus Christ compared to the priesthood of the Levites because he never dies. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. So there's three verses that tell us that though Jesus died and reconciled us by his death, justified us by his death, no one can lay anything to our charge. There is no condemnation. Who is he that tries to condemn one of God's elect that Jesus died for? That is all good and wonderful and great. Yea, rather, much more, Jesus personal. Jesus personally. Did you see him in Revelation 1 when I started out today? Jesus personally is at the right hand of God, and you are inscribed in the palms of his hands and written in the book of life, and he is our surety, and he will not lose a single one of us. Amen. That's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Right. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.